Hello and welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that has received 5 million questions about the Green New Deal and is here to answer your prayers. Today we have Zoe and Kellen. As was mentioned in the intro, we're going to be talking about Green New Deals today. Um, so after our first eco-socialism episode, which was, I think, in March or April, um, we got an email from two amazing listeners all the way in freaking Australia who were like, we've been working on writing this Green New Deal. We love your podcast. Here's this whole long document of Green New Deal. Um and we also, during and after that episode, got so many questions about the Green New Deal and, like, what all of that means, what it looks like, how it'll work. Um, so they're here with us to answer all of our questions about Green New Deals. So <laughs> welcome to our guest from the furthest geographical location in Season of the Bitch history. I didn't fact check this, but I think it has to be true because <laughs> there's literally nothing further than Australia. Welcome, <laughs> Tosh and Anna. <laughs> Hello. Hello. <laughs> Um, I'd just like to, it's Annie here, I'd just like to jump in immediately and say that I think New Zealand is further away. So technically you're covering your bases really well here. (laughs) Do you both want to introduce yourselves and explain how you got started with your own Green New Deal project? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm Anna Sturman. I am a New Zealander in Australia to do my PhD at the University of Sydney um, in political economy. And I look at New Zealand's climate change policy in the context of like state theory and our dominant fraction of capital, which is agriculture um, and theories of value around nature and so on. Uh, And my background is in law and political science. Um, and I'll let Tash introduce herself before we talk about how we got into the Green New Deal stuff. Sure. I just wanted to note as well that we sound like the biggest nerds in the world. Like, <laughs> people emailed us a giant policy document. <laughs> no, I loved it. <laughs> we are. Sorry. Okay. Um, so I'm Tash Heenan. I am a political economist, so I studied in the same department uh, as Anna at the University of Sydney, which is how we met. And I'm also a trade unionist and have been working as a researcher in that movement for a while now. Yeah. And so, um, as Tash said, we met uh, through involvement in the Department of Political Economy. We actually shared the same supervisor for a little bit. All hail, Stuart. Um, (laughs) And, uh, yeah, we, I think, was it February or March this year? We just, like, the news, there had been a particularly horrific news cycle and, we uh, both feel our feelings and woke up one day and we're like, that's it. We have to do something. And obviously um, there'd been a groundswell of stuff going on in the US with the Green New Deal through AOC and Sunrise Movement and everything. And just generally um, it seemed like a tool that we could reach out and use to start framing the ideas that we wanted some of the um, the climate strike, the school kids climate strike to be able to sort of orient itself around. So we sat down and wrote this long policy document that has been shuffled around a number of times since as we've learnt from our mistakes and from the feedback that we received from lots of people. Um, and yeah, since then, it's just been a wild ride of further talking about that document with people, um, forming uh, an organising group um, behind that 
sort of idea, the document, and generally, and like being on podcasts like this where people are interested. So um, yeah, we're excited to talk about it today. Amazing. Also, for the listeners at home who do not know what time we're recording this, it was difficult to schedule around a 14-hour time difference, (laughs) and they woke up at, well, I don't know what time they woke up, but it is currently like 7.30 in the morning, so very early, (laughs) which is a testament to their dedication. We really appreciate it, truly. I woke up like 5.30 this morning. Oh, my God. Like Friday, tailed. Like, yes, today's the day we talk about Green New Deal with Season of the Bitch. (laughs) I'm going to be honest, I would not even wake up at 5 30 for my own podcast uh, <laughs> so I really respect that y'all <laughs> um yeah so it seems like there's kind of a lot of different versions of what a green new deal would mean in the U.S. we hear a bunch of different politicians talking about it um like Liz Warren saying like yeah we need a green new deal we need to strengthen our military and it's like <laughs> no <laughs> um so I thought we'd just start off by talking about what is a green new deal um, obviously, what you're writing is very different than what we have in the U.S. So, like, what what is the unifying factor that is required to be considered a Green New Deal? Or factors, I guess. Yeah, I think um, what was really exciting about the proposal in the U.S., even though it's not necessarily, like, completely aligned with our political values, sort of as you alluded to there, um, was that it was a way to talk about the... Uh, economic crises that we're facing, so like inequality um, in Australia, it's also wage stagnation, um, and the climate crisis as related, you know, completely interconnected crises that needed structural solutions. Um, So I think that's what's common to the different versions of the Green New Deal that we've seen. And we certainly didn't want to create a blueprint that was set in stone. It was more about, you know, putting this document out there that was this draft working document that could be added to by anyone and start a conversation more than anything else. So I think what it could be is really open um, in a good way, but it also means that, you know, as you said, neoliberal policies can be included. Things like a carbon tax could potentially be included. So um, that's why we sort of formed this organising group called the Climate Justice Collective, which can, uh, you know, ensure that the conversation around the Green New Deal in Australia has some kind of progressive, uh, radical, eco-socialist voice that's having an input. And there's going to be a lot of other voices in the conversation, um, which is great because the point is to kind of open up this democratic conversation about, you know, how we want to live together and how we want to, you know, reorganise our society and transform our society to deal not only with the climate crisis, which is kind of like the latest iteration of capitalist crises of value, Um, but all the other crises that we've been living with. So in Australia, um, that's things like the housing crisis, um, which uh, is similar to a lot of cities in the US, I think, um, in that basically like no one can afford a home. Like there's been, um, you know, mass speculation uh, in the real estate market to the point where, you know, housing is increasingly or owning your own home is increasingly out of reach, especially for a number of young people. Um, and especially anyone earning, you know, below um, or on the minimum wage. Uh, You know, tenants have very few rights. Rental housing is, like, shit. (laughs) (laughs) You know, new housing developments are, like, really dodgy and, like, completely inadequate for what people need. So um, there's that. There's also, like, we are already seeing the climate crisis here. So in drought, bushfires, um, 
the heat over last summer was just absolutely oppressive. Especially for someone from New Zealand who was used to a much colder climate. It was was no good at all. Sorry, Tash. No, that's okay. (laughs) Um, But it's kind of like, you know, tying it back to, you know, the ecological degradation that we've seen um, in Australia since invasion for the last 230 years, like the degradation of the soil, the complete transformation of the landscape that occurred um, at the point of that invasion and has been ongoing since that time. So, um, yeah, the crisis in our river systems as well. <laughs> and so we've also got, uh, you know, kind of alongside all of that, a crisis of work and wage stagnation for the past 20 years and increasing contingency of work as well where people um you know, most people don't have the standard employment relationship or a full-time job anymore with, you know, proper hours and mm, uh, yeah. rights and entitlements. I remember my, sorry to interject here with a small personal anecdote, but um, <laughs> temporary contracts for like three years and my boyfriend arrived in Sydney and the first job that he got was a permanent full-time contract and I like almost fell through the door I was like are you serious you actually got like the gold standard no one I know who has a permanent full-time contract that's outrageous anyway mm. um and he was like really I was like yeah don't tell people they'll get jealous <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah. yeah lots of lots of intersecting crises have been existing and mm-hmm. deepening um, yeah definitely and you know we could go through so many areas of crises like political crises and the complete distrust of politics and, you know, um, increasing rise of minor parties, especially, you know, uh, openly racist (laughs) minor parties. Um, There's an anti-politics in Australia, which um, Liz Humphreys talks about, that's, you know, not necessarily a progressive mood that's being seized upon by kind of Trump-like figures in Australia. Um, You know, we've had a royal commission into our banking system which exposed you know widespread just, misconduct yeah, and just like deep rot and everyone was like nothing will happen and yeah. then nothing happened like great through the political sphere that's it that's it and that that exact like that sort of that knot of tension where everyone's just absolutely fed up and knows that nothing is going to work properly when they engage with any system and that's why like this moment this conjuncture is Something we just, you know, these conditions have existed, but they're reaching boiling point, fever mm-hmm. point. And particularly with the rise of climate change and people really, like, getting their heads around it now. It's just the conditions are perfect for a Green New Deal. And that was a really long answer to the question. Do you, do you guys have any, like, specific um, questions about any of that? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that was great. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons that I was excited for this episode is because it's really interesting to talk about how there's so many similarities in what's going on literally on the other side of the planet. So you're really yeah. psyched about this, this like uh, geographical I'm space like, we're covering so in this episode. Cool. I've never gone that far. <laughs> <laughs> My cousin yeah. moved to Australia and um, to with her partner and I was hoping their wedding was going to be there so I would get to go but then they did a destination wedding that was in the U.S. so <laughs> my, my dreams have not yet come to fruition. <laughs> that's beautiful. Well, you've got a cat you can stay on when you when you come here. Yeah yeah you can come stay with us that's fine. Thank you so much. Um, <laughs> well, yeah. Solidarity across borders right? Solidarity. <laughs> Yay. Yeah, 
about, I know via email you said what you were working on was more of like a manifesto than the kind of like policy Green New Deal um, that's going around in the U.S. Um, so I'm wondering like, what are your goals for creating that? What are you hoping to accomplish with this work? I mean, obviously ending climate change, but like more short-term goals. The short-term goals are to begin a conversation. Like when we wrote the, the draft back in March, in the forefront of our minds was like, let's pitch this as far left as we can go. Like as far left as it can go. <laughs> Hauled back to the center really quickly by the, the many different constituent forces that are going to have skin in the game with this. Like, and you know, from, from unions to environmental groups to electoral um, systems and the people within those, like, it's all going to get sort of, and, and there's a very specific relationship between the union movement and um, and politics here that, that constrains and enables us in like very specific ways. Um, so we, we wanted to pitch it as far left as we could possibly go. And then we chose an organizing strategy rather than the electoral strategy, because we, we want to open up this conversation to as many people as possible and to democratize it. And um, we understand also that we are too like middle-class white women from the department of political economy at the university of Sydney, which is like a very specific privileged place to occupy an Australian society. Um, and so the CJC is like the immediate sort of goal for us, like creating this organizing framework uh, through which we can conduct conversations that hopefully like, and really not just like in theory, but really open this conversation up to lots of different communities to start like drawing lines to, to, to connect the dots between all of these intersecting crises that Tash was just talking about and, and provide people sort of that really deep, um, framework of understanding so that when they are thinking about, you know, like, oh, my rent, like a third of my income is going on my rent. And also it's really hot. And my grandma, I can't afford to put her in a home, but she can't live by herself. And like, oh shit, my bus is really full again. Or my train, a train's in Sydney stop all the time because they get overheated or it rains really hard and they just stop. Like a yes. public infrastructure is really bad. Oh no. Like, all of these things are happening and I've put up with them for so long, but now I'm being provided with an opportunity to, um, to engage with these ideas that explain where we're at and that I can actually like see my own struggle and my own life in. And so that might, it feels like a little bit of an airy fairy answer. I know, but that really is the space that we want to immediately open up and just use all of our like, gross institutional privilege to to create that that space and to create the the content that people can access to to facilitate their learning and their taking up space as well can i just add to that that was really great anna <laughs> thank you um, <laughs> because of all these intersecting crises there are so many and like we haven't overcome these particular crisis tendencies in Australia, of course, like everywhere. They're just pushed to the margins mm. and onto people who, you know, uh, shouldn't, have to, bear shouldn't them. have to bear them. And so those people have been rising up. Like we're seeing a massive um, resurgence of people talking about um, unemployment, underemployment, like how awfully punitive our, you know, welfare system is and how difficult it is to try and get 
you know, income payments when you're uh, out of work. Um, and so the Australian Unemployed Workers Union has been kind of this like shining beacon and uh, so good. Yeah, of advocacy for people um, and giving, you know, a voice to people who have been um, completely marginalised marginalized and further marginalised by the systems that are meant to actually, and you know, them. Yeah, help them yeah. during times of unemployment. So there are, um, you know, massive kind of um, campaigns to stop deaths in custody. There is a huge, you know, refugee rights movement in Australia because of our ridiculously... Mm-hmm. Um, cruel offshore water processing regime and just the general carceral violence of, you know, the settler colonial state. So it's mm. not as if these crises have been happening and there's been no pushback. There is, but um, yeah, yeah. what the Green New Deal has the potential to do is link all these people together and create a space for dialogue where we can see that they're all connected and that the movement to oppose them could be connected too. And as good little Marxists, we want to enable that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's all the same thing that's causing the problem. And create like a a positive alternative um, vision for how society could be. Like one of the, you know, we just um, had a federal election that was seen as like an abject failure of the, um, you know, of the Australian Labour Party which is our version of the Democratic Party, mm. um, to kind of capture the public's imagination with their, the particular vision that they took to the election. And um, I think that something like a Green New Deal could potentially provide what people are looking for. Yeah, it can galvanise that actual like conversation about the materiality of what we're moving towards, what we want to move towards, as opposed to just like a hollowed-out neoliberal shilling. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of what y'all are talking about, um, I'm sure will sound very familiar to um, <laughs> American audiences. Uh, the The similarities under neoliberalism in the like, quote unquote, first world um, in a settler colonial state, as you mentioned, are striking. Um, but I'm also wondering, do y'all, especially because of your connection to New Zealand, do you have a sense of how organizing around climate change is different in Australia than in other countries, whether that be New Zealand specifically or the United States or anywhere else in the world you might be familiar with? Um, I mean, I think just the, the geographical, firstly, the geographical context mm-hmm. of Australia and New Zealand are these little like, well, no, sorry, I'll speak about New Zealand maybe. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> But there is, like, the, the underlying stuff is common to both nation-states mm-hmm. and that they're both essentially, like, extractivist in their own ways. And so the, the ways that the economies have been built have been predicated on exploitation of non-human nature in very specific ways. Um, and so part of so New Zealand agriculture, um, which has just been absolutely ruinous, mm. absolutely ruinous, to the environment and then in Australia mining um, and both of those are linked in their respective cases to the dispossession yeah. of indigenous people from their land exactly and so these economies built around violent dispossession and then just like extreme exploitation of non-human nature um, but you know from that we've built up these like relatively robust good morning oh my god <laughs> Library just opened, sorry. <laughs> oh, my God, keep that in. That's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> <I'm> ashamed. 
Woo. Okay. Sorry. So (laughs) economies like relatively robust economies, particularly Australia, because you've kept labor rights, New Zealand lost our labor rights in the early nineties. And therefore is like an even more hollowed out shell of itself than it used to be. Um, But, you know, workers rely on these economies to, to keep going, to provide them with work, to keep stuff happening. And so you see like, because of how we think about the environment in Australia and New Zealand, you see questions of climate justice often end up being like conservation versus jobs. Mm. And that's the, and particularly, as I said, like because Australia, like the, the labor rights here, the union movement is, is still there. It's still alive and kicking in a way that it is not so much in New Zealand because of the legislation that destroyed the union movement in New Zealand. And so we are trying to sort of like figure out how best to negotiate this conversation that acknowledges that people have, they want to work, you know, they don't want to have their, their jobs taken away from them and for their, their ability to live in the society to be taken away for them to be thrown on the, the welfare system that is not a welfare system. That is horrific. Um, so how to talk about the environment and climate change and, um, ecological degradation and all of this stuff while also saying to people we take seriously your lives mm-hmm. <laughs> your lives and your work and that's why it has to be a democratic conversation about like what is the nature of the work that we need to move to um, and how is that going to how do we use that work to do climate justice for want of like better framing mm. so you mentioned that One of your goals in this is building a grassroots activist network called Climate Justice Collective um, that will organize for having a progressive Green New Deal. How are you? Well, first of all, how is that going and how are you building that movement? How are you getting the word out to people? Yeah, so following the election and a lot of people being really disappointed with the result led to people like a huge influx of people. Um, you know, signing up to volunteer and coming along to meetings and our meetings have just been getting bigger and bigger. So a few months ago, we were like four people meeting on a picnic blanket and we had, you know, we were Skyping with some of our mates in Melbourne. And now it's turned into kind of like five city-based chapters and we've devolved from a national kind of loose structure to autonomous chapters who are kind of unified by this set of principles and this, you know, idea of a, an eco-socialist orientation to a Green New Deal type politics. Of course, it's probably going to be called something really different in Australia and, and look really different, but the the general kind of um, idea of tying together all of these intersecting crises and like coming up with uh, a set of policies or a set of ideas that can take us forward to, you know, whatever the world is going to look like in a, in a climate changing Australia that is, you know, democratized and decarbonized and decolonized and um, decommodified. Decommodified. <laughs> so um, those chapters have taken on a life of their own and, and people have been really, it's been really nice to turn up to meetings and just have a lot of people kind of bringing their ideas um, and their energy and excitement and sort of linking up with all of the other groups that are already doing this work in different spaces um, and, and, you know, ensuring that we're focused on solidarity work, especially with First Nations organisations that have been, you know, in the climate justice space for a long time um, and with, you know, unemployed workers movements, with um, refugee rights movements. So, um, 
you know, there's been a lot of kind of a, a resurgence in climate activism in Australia. So trying to um, be a part of that conversation in a way that's productive where we can, you know, put these ideas out there and, and let people kind of run with them. Yeah, and like and catalyze that unification the understanding that the underlying causes for a lot of our issues are the same. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that that's great. I mean, it's it's impressive to hear about how much things have changed in such a short period of time. Um, another thing that I was thinking about as y'all were talking is, and I, I don't know sort of which cities in Australia um, these chapters are, but I know that, that the, um, you mentioned Australia's geography, that, that the, nation is vast and there's a lot of different you know ecological uh i'm not gonna i'm not a scientist the you know but there's a lot of different climates there's a lot of different ecology different um place different places are are very different have very different relationships to the climate um and so i'm wondering how are y'all or how do you guys think through approaching um these sorts of questions. And I think this also relates to what you were talking about earlier with the sort of um, the like green energy versus jobs question. How do do you approach navigating something as important as like climate change activism um, in a country as vast and as different, you know, in different places as Australia is? I think that really goes to the point about um, being localised. Like, that's why we've got different chapters. And we're really excited. There have been sort of murmurings of chapters maybe emerging in some of the more regional areas Mm. uh, as opposed to in the big cities because um, obviously there are people all over Australia and not just in five cities. (laughs) So I think having localised localized chapters or just connections um connecting different groups doing work um in localized spaces and unifying them under the idea of these principles and the general um thrust of the gnd that um we've drafted is sort of the best answer i have to like how to deal with very diverse uh landscapes and ecologies and communities um and interests Mm -hmm. that are in play at any given time in a different space um yeah, because it's true, like, Australia is vast and there are many different, um, uh, you know, from the the the, des- the deserts and the, like, incredible heat in the centre through to the coastal regions and, um, you know, like, forest. Like, there's, there's a lot of different stuff going on. And the, the best response I could provide is that, we're trying to get local communities to feel like they're connected up to something bigger, but that they have autonomy at their at their local level to do what's right for their communities. That's great, and I that also I think relates to something I had a similar question, which was, um, you know, how do you both see, um, you know, opportunities for strategies for working across national lines for green organizing? Well, I think, you know, the international solidarity thing, and Tasha alluded to this earlier when talking about, um, you know, the militarized borders that Australia has. And also, like, there have been murmurings of people being, um, you know, talking about the future of energy in Australia and, like, maybe exporting green energy and that kind of thing. Um, And I think it's really important that we um, think about this movement 
in Australia as part of the broader Pacific and the things going on um, both in New Zealand and the Pacific Islands and um, in, in the general region, it's important to understand that the success, um, inverted commas, success <laughs> of Australia's economy <laughs> is predicated a lot of the time on subjugation and extraction of resources from our Pacific neighbours. Um, and so we need to be um, connecting up with the communities across the Pacific and um, amplifying their their campaigns and the things that they're doing to protect themselves and to repel the power of capital accumulation. Um, and I mean, I don't know what specific forms that needs to take uh, in a Green New Deal context, like what sort of policies that would specifically look like in the future. But I think we just need to maintain an open orientation in terms of how we would work with other communities. other, um, And we also need to think very, very carefully about um, yeah, the militarization of our borders and the whole like climate emergency rhetoric that's been coming up in the context of Green New Deal stuff recently. So it's probably like quite a nice pivot to talking about um, some of the like the climate emergency stuff that's been going on down here in Australia mm. and, and how that relates to Green New Deal. Yeah, yeah. yeah go for it. Sorry, that was no. the terminal rise of my voice is a very Kiwi thing. That's okay. <laughs> I think, yeah, there's the the Australian climate and environmental movement, um, while it has like many different iterations and formations, has been kind of dominated by, uh, you know, white settler voices. Mm. And so there's a real need in like, uh, Green New Deal politics and especially like an eco-socialist, anti-racist Green New Deal politics to kind of um, make sure that the there's recognition of the existing um, ecological, social and ecological struggles for Aboriginal rights and justice, um, but that they're neither kind of separate or collapsible into climate justice. So it's keeping that nuance there um, in solidarity work. So, um, you know, showing up when called upon, not just to kind of... In, the annual invasion day marches, which are growing all the time um, and a great sign that people are more engaged in these politics, but also showing up and listening for the rest of the year as well. Um, and recognizing that, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders are on the front lines of this fight and they've been on the front lines for some time. So um, the writer Naika Gori has, you know, called attention to the way that the climate crisis is viewed as this unprecedented existential threat um, when in fact the existential threat and destruction of life began with invasion 230 years ago and it's continued since then. And so calls for a climate emergency are potentially dangerous when we think about, you know, the ahistorical framing, but also, you know, the um, previous states of emergency in Australia have led to the stripping of rights from um, vulnerable groups like the Northern Territory intervention. Mm. Um, and it's been used against you know, people who represent the biggest threat to the white settler colonial states, so First Nations claim to sovereignty, um, but also asylum seekers and, you know, manufacturing the crisis at our border or boat arrivals. You know, they've been used, um, you know, by a conservative and repressive state. So we think steering away from a politics of a climate emergency and the kind of we only have 12 years framing to doing kind of deep relational organising work that's going to take some time to build a foundation, um, build trust and make sure that solidarity is at the heart of everything that we do. Yeah. And we were talking about this last night, actually, in preparation for talking to you guys, um, and how just like 
that that like we've got to do something right now. We've got to like all of a sudden like we realize that there's a problem and we're going to do something right now. And yeah, the 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 abdication of responsibility and control to like a couple of central figures um, that that entails is just obviously deeply deeply troubling. Um, but like on another level, it, it also encourages people to think that like if we don't do something right now, like the world will just stop one day. And we really want people to think about like <sighs> the materiality of the world. There there is like a class of 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 people of like businessmen and shiny suits who like their jobs are just like abstractions that like that work yeah like that work like dealing in financialized assets and shit like if that stopped tomorrow that ephemeral like inconsequential arbitrary work if that stopped tomorrow like that wouldn't have any impact on the real world like people's actual labor like the important jobs that people do like aged care work and like not even unwaged work you know mm-hmm. the, the 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 social reproduction of our world that goes on like that isn't going to stop and the world will keep going we can keep going and we can build a better future from just like living and understanding this fight that we're in instead of declaring an emergency giving all the power to the people in the shiny suits who will no doubt like create some sort of market to like hedge risk or something like that's not going to save the earth that's not going to save any of us um we need to just accept that there's a big problem we really need to address it and we're only going to do that through the deep relational work that tash was talking about and realizing that you know we're allowed to live on this earth and do the things that we need to do to survive like we don't have to press a button and just give up society. We need to engage properly with the good stuff in society and let go of that fucking nonsense that is <laughs> the financial sector. <laughs> <laughs> Diatribe over. <laughs> so something else I wanted to talk about, um, as with all colonized places, obviously Australia has a long history of abuse towards the indigenous folks and the land that they occupied. Um, oddly enough, at my high school, we read the Aboriginals. Um, I don't know if that's something that is popular to read in Australia, but it is about the history of Indigenous folks there. And we talked about like how horrible Australia was towards Native populations, but didn't really talk about how like the U.S. is almost exactly the same. <laughs> but you guys mentioned... Um, how it was necessary to talk about decolonization when we're talking about a Green New Deal. So how are you addressing that with your work? Like with a broad acknowledgement that firstly extraction and just the exploitation of land and people and culture has to stop. Um, And I guess we mean the decommodification of labor, land and life, which is going to take a really long time. um, Because as you know, it's been an incredibly destructive and violent past for the Australian settler state. Um, it's been 230 years of colonialism and capitalism. Um, so it's going to take a huge amount of work to repair those, like just that ruptured life. Um, so it means healing ecologies we're embedded in. It means caring for each other. Um, we went to a film screening the other night um, that was hosted by Seed Mob, which is um, 
which is the Youth Indigenous Environment Network connected to the Australian Youth Climate Coalition. Is it Climate Coalition? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they were talking about and they were showing a film that was about fracking in the Northern Territories the other night. Um, and they were talking, the the lead organiser, the head organiser for SEED, was talking about decolonizing our mindsets um, and approaching um, and the approach to non-human nature and like how we need to shift from the way that um, we currently have conversations about the environment. Um, and yeah, just the way that they spoke about that was really compelling and um, excited to see their, the short film that they were showing. It's like a half hour um, film that's that focused on the communities in the Northern Territory talking about why they're rejecting fracking. And they actually had uh, a woman from Canada a woman from Canada who was from a frontline community where fracking had occurred, um, like engaging in conversation in the short film with the frontline communities in Australia about, and that, that conversation between those two first nations sort of groups was incredibly compelling. I think anyway, um, the campaign that the film was about is called country needs people. And it's about, no, no, it's called, um, water is life. The film is called water is life. There's like a campaign to kind of, um, Get Origin Energy, which is the company right. that's planning on expanding fracking into that area to withdraw um, and that they didn't get actual, you know, free prior and informed consent from yeah. the people that they supposedly did. Um, but there are a lot of campaigns that are about the kind of work that we're talking, you know, about in terms of the Green New Deal. So um, Country Needs People is about expanding, you know, bush care and Aboriginal ranger programs. Right, sorry. And yeah. kind of work that needs to be done that can be, you know, easily kind of um, lead into climate justice conversations um, in order to, like, actually care for the, you know, land waterways that we live on and are a part of. Yeah. Yeah, and it goes back to it links just at a very high level to the nature of work conversations that we're sort of more, that's our area of stuff that we love talking about. Um, And, yeah, just aware there's some incredible work on the ground already in, in terms of land use um, and regeneration and general just like living with non-human nature as humans. I just pulled over some questions from when we did the first eco-socialism episode, we just posted on Twitter like, hey, do you have any questions about this? Let us know. And most of the questions were about Green New Deal. And that right. episode we were like, we're not really trying to focus on that, but now we are. So I pulled over the ones that weren't like super US specific. Um, but maybe we could just like go through a couple of these. So the first one from Emma was, do you consider a job guarantee to be essential to the Green New Deal and why? Oh. <laughs> I think <I'm> got- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've, Anna and I have been thinking about this a lot from a, you know, socialist feminist perspective. A um, lot. A lot. A lot. Uh, <clears throat> in terms of this kind of debate that's been set up we think or from our perspective between a job guarantee and a universal basic income as you know different ways to think about um the nature of work going forward and you know guaranteed income for people um so for us it's about we need to think about like what does decommodification of life and labor look like in australia and starting to open that up to a you know a much broader conversation so you know what's going to allow for the emergence of revolutionary subjects. That's essentially the question that we ask ourselves when we're assessing these different policy approaches or theoretical approaches. Um, And that kind of the debate over 
a job guarantee program and a universal basic income doesn't really get to what we see as the heart of the problem, which is the false division between, you know, unpaid reproductive labour and, um, you know, the productive labour or the world of formal work and employment. Yeah. So <coughs> that's the question that we are actually more interested in untangling, you know, mm. whether that leads to um, calls for a job guarantee, which is, yeah, what we put in our original Green New Deal draft, but we've had a lot of reflection since that time. I think the point is to make sure that it's a job guarantee that completely radically changes the idea of, like, what counts as work. Yeah. Um, you know, a massive reduction in the amount of time that we spend at work um, and much more leisure time for people to, you know, do what they want but kind of, you know, extending uh, the promise of the, you know, the division in the working day, you know, eight hours for work, eight hours for sleep, eight hours for what we will, you know, changing. Obviously, we want less than eight hours at work, but also <laughs> extending that time of what we will to women, finally, and people who and abolishing the reproductive labour. Yeah. yeah. And so the, like, the, the thing that we think the job guarantee could be really useful for in that context with the complete reorientation of what counts as inverted commas work the big the the huge collective social provisioning that needs to exist in order to facilitate such a shift and obviously like and that gets into like interesting stuff that you know like sophie lewis has talked about in terms of the family and like institutions of capitalism that keep things sort of locked in the way that they are with co huge collective social provisioning you both like create a whole lot of different forms of reproductive labor and care work that people need to be oriented towards and and placed into positions that do that and then that helps to sort of shift the weight of the second shift so you know, a, a whole lot of jobs that are male dominated at this point and are like traditionally conceived of as productive labor are going to need to shift into care work. Like, food. Don't be abolished because they're bullshit jobs. I mean, yeah, of some of the, yeah, a whole lot of bullshit jobs do need to go. Mm. But, you know, like hugely extractive stuff needs to stop. And in place, you need like food systems, provision of that kind of like care. Mm. You need um, things to, places to meet, public spaces, um, quality universal basic services. So education, healthcare, including like dental and physiotherapy and stuff like that. Um, making all of those things free. Yeah, making them free and readily everyone. available and like places for people to congregate and be human. So like a job guarantee is the thing that, sorry, so yeah, like laundries, community-based centres, swimming pools, my favorite thing about Australia, like big public swimming pools, um, stuff like that. A job guarantee is the thing that helps us plan like what that work looks like and then allocating it, coordinating, coordinating yeah. it efficiently. And then, At the most devolved level possible. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think without a coordinating mechanism like a job guarantee, just the kind of work that we have to do to rebuild our society in a way that acknowledges the importance of um, the social relations that support our societies, you know, like it's a hard thing to do because we're also, we don't want to reify the wage relation. In yeah. sense. You, you know, we're trying to unpick, you know, the work ethic um, in the vein of Kathy Weeks and kind of the idea of workfare and entitlement to rights through work. Obviously we don't want to shift things further in that direction, um, but it's going to take a long time to unpick that mentality. And, you know, the material conditions right now is massive unemployment and underemployment and most people want jobs and that's the way for them to feel connected to their labour and other people. So 
making sure that it's a non-coercive program. We've, we've had a lot of examples of like very punitive kind of work for the doll type programs in Australia that are absolutely have to go and the job guarantee cannot look anything like that. It has to be, there has to be a genuine choice. So a basic income that's available to anyone who wants it, that doesn't want to work, can't work, is not interested in the job guarantee program, has to be there alongside it. Like they have to go together as well as an expansion in these quality you know, public services that address spatial inequality and access to services in Australia as well. It's something that, you know, decommodification does well in, in, in what, you know, and what a universal basic income wouldn't do in Australia is all of a sudden deal with the massive spatial inequality and access to services that we have because it's still, you know, the primacy is still in the market for delivering these services as opposed to making them public and community-based. Mm. So obviously, yeah, we have a lot of thoughts and feelings about the decommodification of um, life and labour in relation to a job guarantee. And I think it's, you know, like these big questions about the extension of the wage relation versus like <sighs> versus decommodification. Like it's it, they're slippery words, they're slippery concepts, and the only way that we're going to really work through them is by thinking about the materiality of the world as it is and where we want to get to. Um, so, yeah, at this point, job guarantee, yes, there's a huge amount of work to be done. We've got to do it. Let's do it in the most, like, democratic way possible, which is that devolved program supported by a basic income for the people who either don't want to or can't work. That was awesome. That was, like, the best answer to a job <laughs> I know. question I've literally ever heard. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Thank you so much for explaining it that way. That was aw- – yeah, I just – that was – yeah, my mind is blown. Um, Me too. Really well said. <laughs> this is like how we talk together all of the time. Like someone will be like a job guarantee, like mutter it under their breath, and then we'll just get going for like an hour. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, it was funny because this past week I was hanging out with a friend who I've known for a while, and she's just like, yeah, have you ever heard of like the second shift? And I was like, one, I really appreciate that you are educating yourself, um, like good for personal growth. Two, have you ever met me though? <laughs> yes. Oh my god, I get that way whenever someone's like, "Have you read George Monbiot?" and I'm like, "Don't come at me with that Guardian article writing nonsense." <laughs> I know who he is. And yes, like I've read the theorist that he, no, I'm getting really wanky. Sorry. I'll just <laughs> shut it down. But yeah. <laughs> Kellen, did you want to ask one of the other Twitter cues? Yeah. So I, I think that one of the really interesting things that, that y'all have talked about is the, um, you know, the, the way that you're the kinds of big demands that you're making, I think it's really smart, you know, not to negotiate against yourselves when you're putting something out into the world, not to think like, you know, what is what is plausible within our current political confines, but really like put out a, a vision for how, you know, our society should function. Um, and I, one of the people on Twitter um, asked about, and this was, I think, more specific to the American Green New Deal, but like what some aspects of environmental justice, what are some aspects of environmental justice that the Green New Deal doesn't address um, and what path might there be for those issues? And I think one way we could sort of tweak that question to be a little bit more applicable here is um, 
maybe if y'all could talk a little bit more about your rationale for the way that you're approaching this. I You mentioned that you've made a very specific, intentional decision not to go through the electoral process with this kind of organizing. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that and why um, this more uh, grassroots organizing with indigenous communities, organizing with labor is, in your view, uh, sort of a more fruitful direction. Yeah, definitely. Well, just like the actual conditions about politics here right now is that we have a conser- a very conservative government, you know, in power for the next three years. Um, and it's the same as, you know, at the state level that we live in, New South Wales, also a conservative government. So it's, it's completely necessary for us to turn to grassroots organising. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Climate Justice Collective has really started at a time where there's this renewed upsurge in climate politics in Australia um, because of our material conditions, because climate change is becoming more visible, inequality is really starting to bite here. And people are beginning to see that those things are connected to other struggles and they want systemic solutions. And they, you know, um, because of the disaffection with our um, political process, they are turning elsewhere for those solutions. So there is an appetite for a big positive vision. Um, You know, we've been mired in this really negative and depressing climate politics that talks only in terms of trade-offs that we need to move beyond. And our organising work is ultimately geared towards, you know, the self-sustaining creation of revolutionary subjects. Yes. Um, (laughs) You know, it's not up to us to kind of impose a set of policies on this debate and therefore demarcate the horizon of change. Um, But we want to implode capitalist realism, and this is the exact moment to do that. Um, there's this beautiful quote from um, an Australian artist, Sam Warman, and they've written that, you know, the climate crisis presents itself today and for a short while longer as a tear in the fabric, and we can rip that hole wide open and, you know, what the world will look like on the other side is up to us because, you know, we do all the work. And I think that's, like, really beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> and it's on this beautiful, like, Sam Warman is an incredible artist and does these huge like graphics for um, different movements and just like that Taj and I both teared up a little when we saw the poster that had that one on it because just like the beauty and the art and it goes to the materiality of of what we're doing there's creating this big positive vision that is um, that is built on people feeling empowered to have these conversations both like through having the information and this is what part of what we want to do, like the information that people need to be able to um, work through and sort of like sit with and think about in relation to their own lives. Like that information needs to be readily available. And also like this needs to be quite a beautiful thing. Like we're trying to create a world that's actually good to live in for everyone. You know, we need bread and roses and we really want for people to have the opportunity to make art yes. and to like do that together and to feel like they've got a stake in this beautiful future. And so that's like making, making this more than just like a nihilist running away from the worst possible outcome, but running towards a world that we want to live in. Um, and we're not going to do that through asking politicians to vote the right way in Australia. That's just not, how we're going to get there in the short term. In the short term, what we can do is inspire people to have conversations about a good world mm-hmm. and to link up with other people who feel the same way. And I think there's potential together. to kind of articulate that vision in a way that 
doesn't necessarily have to engage in the debates between degrowth and fully automated luxury communism by kind of choosing a side. Yeah. Um, there was a really great critique of the Green New Deal from Jasper Burns in, in Commune. Um, and, you know, we definitely take a lot of those ideas on board and it's why global justice has to be a part of the Green New Deal because there is potential to kind of kick off these new rounds of extraction and accumulation if there's some kind of renewables boom yeah. as a part of, you know, nationalistic Green New Deals taking off everywhere. Um, nonsense. Yeah, so for, for us the way to get around that is, you know, an eco-socialist orientation that's about, you know, creating public luxury um, that won't even remotely come close to, um, you know, being equal to the wasteful consumption of the top, you know, 1% or 10%, you know. Um, <laughs> what did we say the other night? It was like if we have really good collective social provisioning and, like, public infrastructure and all of that stuff, we can live so, so fucking well and it won't even come close carbon-wise to, like, five people just continuously flying about the earth in their private jets yep. and, like, landing occasionally for a mimosa somewhere. You're yep. Like, it's not... <laughs> It's totally possible for us to have really good lives. Um, we just have to transform our idea of, of of nature and, you know, like Neil Smith, like all of that stuff. We need to transform our idea of nature, of humans and non-human nature and like what the materiality of our future could look like. Did that even answer the question? We just went off. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, that was great. Seriously. Yeah, I I mean, I think I think that answered the question really well. Oh, okay. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> like, we were in a room together. We get like gesticulating and just like real egging each other on. Oh, we're excited. I, I feel like this is a real treat to just like be a part of this conversation with you all. That's wonderful. <laughs> well, I'm glad. I'm glad. <laughs> What do you think, Zoe? Should we? That might be a good way to to wrap things up. Yeah, I mean, I think that was like very inspiring. While yeah, while you guys were talking, I was just like, wow. <laughs> Same. <laughs> it's like, wow, they're so fucking smart. <laughs> I mean, everyone we have on this podcast is smart, for the record. But <laughs> don't tell our other guests. <laughs> no, this. I yeah, it was. Um, I yeah, it's sometimes it's hard to. Uh, wrap up these episodes we try to to wrap up on a somewhat positive note and it can be difficult um and i think it it can be especially difficult when we're talking about something that is in some ways as terrifying as climate change can be but um the way that y'all talk about this project the way that that you the kind of world that you describe um, it makes me feel really hopeful and I am a nihilist at heart. So that's, that's really, that's an impressive feat in and of itself. Um, so I think that's a great way to end it. Um, yeah. yeah and just thank y'all both so much for coming on. Oh, thank, thank you, you so, so much, much for having us. This honestly is such a treat. <laughs> we feel such... the same way. Oh, solidarity. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. Bye, y'all. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks for having us. Wow. I'm. Uh, I'm still riding a high from that interview. That was awesome. Uh, we. I just. Wow. Truly, exciting stuff. Um, and I will probably not be depressed about the climate for at least the next two days, which is saying something. Um, 
So with all that being said, uh, you can find us on Twitter, um, kind of on Facebook, uh, if you still use that platform. We're on Instagram. We're at Season of the Bee. Uh, you can email us your ideas, um, like our friends did for this episode, at seasonofthebee at gmail.com. Um, leave us a, a, you know, a rating, a review on iTunes. It helps people find us. We are, as you've heard, trying to move into that Australia market. So the more <laughs> ratings and reviews you give, the more likely we are, we are to uh, you know, build a, a true fan base down under. I'm sorry that I did that. Uh, <laughs> no, that was so good. <laughs> <laughs> this uh, this has been Season of the Bitch. We love you all. Zoe, I love you. I love you. I love also, you. I just want to say this is living proof. If you're listening to this and you're like, I'm doing something really fucking cool too, you should email us and like we might decide to have you on. <laughs> At our discretion. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. We love it. Okay. Well, Zoe, I love you. Love you. Love you. Bye. Season of the Bitch.